Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're recording late on Thursday night after a ridiculous Celtics-Warriors game tonight that I really feel like I drank 10 to 12 beers and I didn't have a sip of alcohol. I feel drunk after watching that game tonight. It was just absolutely wild. We will do some Red Sox later on. We'll chat with Julian McWilliams from The Globe. He has a great story on Xander Bogart siding with the San Diego Padres. So we'll get into that, get into the Duvall move, and just look at this Red Sox team as we get closer to the start of the season. But man, what did we witness tonight? Because we got to start with the Celtics. Even the end of overtime, you felt like, wait, hold on. The Celtics are going to win this game, but hold on a second. There's life for the Warriors because Smart has that turnover at the end there. And DiVincenzo ends up with a wide open three to cut it to 121 to 118. You need Al Horford just to get the ball up on the rim to make sure that the Warriors don't have a chance to inbound the ball from half court at the end there. So luckily, they don't fuck it up at overtime. They end up winning this game. But really, for the majority of the game, you're thinking this the C's shit the bed again against this Golden State Warriors team. And the Warriors have something on the Celtics, right? And it seemed like that for really... 46 minutes or so, it felt like the Celtics were going to lose this game. But they made just enough plays to get this thing into overtime. You think about it, with two minutes left, Smart off the Curry miss, finds Jason Tatum, where he just leaks out in transition, gets an easy dunk to make it 102-100, to 100, 
And then with 130 left, it's 104 to 100. Tatum drives left. Great pass to Al Horford, who hits a three to make it 104-103. You get the Al block on Poole. And then late in the game there, Tatum throws the ball right to Jordan Poole. And this is after he had a bad turnover that didn't cost him where Wiggins picked him. But he doesn't see Jordan Poole. He's trying to throw the ball to Jalen Brown. And they get an easy bucket. They make it 106-103. And at that point, with 36 seconds left, you think the Celtics are losing. But Jalen Brown, who was not awake for the majority of the game, and I'll get into Jalen in greater detail because, of course, he could be rusty coming back from the injury. But with 18 seconds left, he hits the three. It's 106-106. You're like, holy shit, the Celtics actually have an opportunity to win this game. And, of course, they end up winning in overtime. But down the stretch, they make just enough plays to win this thing. Like, that game should have never gotten to overtime. And the Seas were, of course, the better team in overtime. But, man, they really made you sweat that thing out tonight because... So many times I'm thinking about, hey, what am I going to say about Tatum tonight? What am I going to say about Jalen Brown tonight? What am I going to say about this Celtics team tonight after they lose another game to the Golden State Warriors and they end up finding a way to pull this thing out? It was a gritty win. So you got to give the C's credit for sticking with it and forcing overtime like as ugly as it was at times. And I'll get into that. It does feel like this was massive for this team, right? Because the Warriors, let's not act like this wasn't true. The Warriors had an edge over the Celtics. They beat them in the finals. And I don't want to see, by the way, just on a side note, a potential finals rematch against this team. No way. I do not want to see this team because they have something on the Celtics. But man, the C's needed this. And you have to believe that there's a sense of relief in that locker room after the game, because this is not a team that they have beaten in a long time since game three of the NBA finals when they went up two to one. Ever since they blew that fourth quarter of game four, the Celtics have not beaten this Warriors team and the Warriors have had their number. So sticking with it at the end of the game tonight in the fourth quarter where it looked really bad for the Celtics, I didn't believe they were going to win at the end of the fourth quarter. I'm sure a lot of you didn't. It did show some sense of mental toughness, right? All right. So let's get to Tatum first, because just like the game was bizarre, Tatum's performance was incredibly odd in this game. So you look at Tatum and you look at the final line and you say, wait, 34 points, 19 rebounds, six assists, and he was a plus seven. And by the way, the 19 rebounds, a career high. The guy must have been unreal in the game tonight, right? Well, he had the same issues he had in the finals, right? I mean, if you look at it, he was just nine for 27 from the floor, 33.3%. He shot 50 of 141 in the past seven games, counting the one he played earlier this season against Golden State. That's 35.5%. So another bad shooting night against the Warriors for Tatum. He was 5 of 14 on two, so what, 35.7%. The last seven games he's played against this Warriors team, 28 of 88, that's 31.8%. So again, he struggled from the field. He struggled with his two-point shooting, and he struggled protecting the basketball. He had seven turnovers in this game. He's now, the past seven before this one, he had 25 turnovers against the Warriors. That's 3.6 per game. He had seven tonight. Now, the one difference I will say is the free throws. That's how he was able to get to that 34-point threshold there is 12 times he got to the free throw line. He hit all 12 free throw attempts. So that's massive. That's a big difference from where he was last year in the NBA Finals. In the Finals, Game 6, he didn't take a single free throw, and he took 7 in just 2 of those games. He took 12 free throws tonight and hit all 12 of them. So that's big, Tatum, getting downhill, getting to the free throw line when he could because clearly the shot was not falling. So that's the one difference, but the finishing was a problem again. And man, it felt like he almost gave this game away. I mean, just look at some of the bad stuff from Tatum in this game. Going back to the third quarter, he had that uncharacteristic travel for no reason. 
He missed a wide open three. He missed a layup. He just blew a shot at the rim. 258 left in the third quarter. Gets to the line, but it should have been an and one. Remember, he had an easy layup that he just missed. I mean, it was barely any contact. He got hit in the arm. He easily should have hit that with his left hand. 9-10 left in the fourth quarter. He airballed a fadeaway. Then he had another travel. Then he missed another layup, okay? And then, as we mentioned, the turnover's late. Wiggins picks him in transition. That can't happen. And the pass that he made right to Poole, I don't know how he didn't see Poole when he's trying to throw the ball to Jalen Brown. So just really big mistakes down the stretch of this game. And he was really careless with the basketball. And the Warriors do have something on Tatum where they know, and you can tell, they're game planning for this. Once Tatum gets going downhill, that's when they bring the extra defender. And that's when Tatum turns the basketball over. So like... The C's winning this game really does save some of the Tatum narrative because most of the Tatum narrative, despite the numbers, would have been negative if the Celtics lost this game tonight. But two other things besides the free throws were encouraging to me tonight about Tatum. So down the stretch, they were getting good shots because of Tatum, right? Because what Tatum was doing is Tatum as the screener was basically getting you mismatches. So one time he gets Steven Chenzo on him. He realizes the Warriors are in the bonus. He gets to the free throw line. Another time, he finds a way to get DiVincenzo on him, causes a double team, kicks the ball to Al. Al hits an open jump shot. So that was big, just down the stretch of the game, going to that strategy where Tatum as the screener gets the small switched on him. That created good shots for the Celtics down the stretch. The rebounds were big too. 19, that's a career high, okay? He averaged just 6.8 in the finals, which isn't like a bad number, but 19, that's massive. And... I mean, he had a game where he had three rebounds in that NBA final. So this is massive just to get to that career high because it does show you that he's helping you win in other ways when he's not playing well. Like the Warriors just have his number. Bottom line, I mean, we've seen this before, like with great players like Tom Brady for years going to Denver was an issue for Tom Brady. They seem to have his number. The Giants seem to have his number. Right. And it just feels like with Tatum, this Warriors team has his number. But I do think like the C's getting this one helps the team's mentality going forward because this was hovering over the Celtics, this Warriors game, right? Like what's going to happen when you see the Warriors again? And I think this too does help Tatum, right? Because he's beaten Durant in the postseason. He beat Giannis in the postseason. And the Warriors were the one team that really embarrassed Jason Tatum. And even earlier this season, they embarrassed Jason Tatum. So even though some of the same issues he had in the finals, some of the same issues he had earlier on the season, the Celtics were able to overcome it And Tatum was able to do some things down the stretch, and he was able to find other ways to contribute to help the Celtics win this game. So I do feel like it's big for Tatum, although if they saw the Warriors again, I would not feel great about Tatum in that matchup. All right, let's get to Jalen. 16 points. Final line does not look good. Most of the game, he did not look good. But one, this was big to me that Jalen played, right? Jalen is coming back from an injury. And let me ask you the hypothetical here. If Jalen was playing tonight or the Celtics were playing tonight, let's say the Indiana Pacers, let's say the Chicago Bulls, let's say the Toronto Raptors, the Orlando Magic. Does Jalen Brown play in the game tonight? Fuck no. Jalen Brown, this is what I like about him. He's a competitive guy. He wanted to be out there because he knew how important this game was to the rest of the guys out there and his teammate, Jason Tatum, most importantly. He realized, I got to be out there for my guy. I really do truly believe that. Now, you can say, oh, Brian, he's going to play no matter what. I don't buy it. I believe he played because it was the Golden State Warriors, bottom line. So I do appreciate that from Jalen Brown, right? Because just like Tatum, he feels scarred from the finals. Now, Jalen was better than Tatum in the finals. He was great in terms of the shot making. The turnovers were an issue just like they were for Jason Tatum. 
But with Jalen Brown, he too was part of the reason you lost in the NBA Finals. He did not protect the basketball. So him being out there trying to overcome this hurdle as well was massive. And number two in terms of Jalen from a positive perspective, he found it down the stretch, right? He hit the massive three, of course, to send it to overtime. And then in OT, they really played through Jalen at times. He had the nice drive to make it 110-106. He then got the foul on Clay Thompson, which was debatable, but I do think Jalen would have picked that up and scored anyway. But nonetheless, and then he found Al Horford for an open three. So you knew that Jalen could be rusty coming back from the injury. And you heard Draymond Green talking shit, not talking shit about Jalen, but talking about, hey, force Jalen to go left. And obviously we know that's a real thing. They did it in the NBA Finals. So it was nice to see Jalen show up late after having a really difficult start to the game and looking rusty. Him hitting that big three, I think, was good for Jalen going forward, too. It's like, okay, this is the team that sort of owns the Celtics, and Jalen really struggled in the finals. He's the guy that hits the big three, so I thought that was big. All right, number three is Al. Holy shit. Al Horford was tremendous in this game. Three blocks, two down the stretch, one on Wiggins, and the one on Poole at the rim was just absolutely ridiculous. This guy, at the age of 36, played 37 minutes. He was the offense in the first quarter. He finished with 10 points in the first quarter. He ends up with 20. And how about the big three to cut it to 104-103 with 130 left? We referred to that play earlier. And even, you think about it, getting the ball at the rim at the end where if you don't get the ball to the rim there, the Warriors get the ball at half court for the inbound pass, as I alluded to earlier. But just getting that ball off the rim was massive because the Celtics are doing nothing at the end of that. I mean, really, you threw... Al, a flaming bag at the end of the shot clock, and he had to try to get it up there, and luckily he did. But most importantly, okay, it reminded you that Al Horford, because this is a playoff atmosphere. Let's not dismiss that, right? I mean, the garden was jumping. It felt like these teams going back and forth, nervous energy on both sides at times. It reminded you, oh, yeah, Al's really fucking important when it comes to big games for the Celtics team. You think back to last year, the big game he had against Milwaukee, right? 30 points in game four. After Giannis dunked on him, he went back at Giannis. He gave the head nod, which you can see it. It's all over social media now as a gift. But Al saved the season last year. You don't, if you lose game four, the season's over. And it just was a reminder tonight where it was a big game. Al was really, really good. All right. Number four in terms of like looking through the guys here, you look at Rob Williams, seven offensive rebounds. He creates extra opportunities. Even when he didn't get an offensive rebound, he drew a foul on Draymond Green to create an extra possession, right? He had one offensive rebound that led to a wide-open Tatum three. Also, the passing. I mentioned this with Rob before. Like, he found a wide-open Al Horford. The inside-out game from those two guys. And it was just a reminder of Rob's impact against this Golden State team where he was a plus 24 in the finals last season. He was absolutely tremendous in this game tonight in terms of bringing energy. High-minute total for him tonight as well. So it's just a different dimension that this Celtics team didn't have for the majority of the season. Okay, and then the last major development from a Celtics perspective in this game, I felt was Brogdon. So it's not so much about the 14 points and the seven rebounds, although he did have that huge block on Jordan Poole, by the way, as well. And he had a big offensive rebound and a putback in this game as well. He had the big three that cut it to, what, 97 and 92. But the big development to me was seeing him close the game with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum because... Very quietly, that trio together, the numbers have not been good, right? So if you look at it coming into tonight, the Celtics actually had a negative net rating. So points per 100 possessions, they were outscored by 2.1 points per 100 possessions on the season, 
with those two guys on the with those three guys on the court together. Okay, and you would think, well, hold on, those you could argue those are the three best players on the team. Now, I would put Rob Williams over Malcolm Brogdon, and you could argue Marcus Smart. But nonetheless, you can make that argument. I don't want to get into semantics here. But the point being is, you look at Derek White with those two guys, their net rating is 10.8. So they're outscoring teams by 10.8 points per 100 possessions with White, Jalen Brown, and Tatum on the court. When it's Tatum, Brown, and Malcolm Brogdon, they're getting outscored by 2.1. So one of the big things is that Malcolm Brogdon is not really used to playing off the ball. He has the ball a lot in his hands. And when it's just Tatum or it's just Brown, he's still going to have the ball in his hands a lot. When it's Jalen and Tatum, that's not going to be the case. So the reason I point this out, and he had a great game tonight, the reason I point this out is it's real important when it comes to the postseason. Because remember, one of the things we said in that series against the Golden State Warriors, you needed another guy that could create offense. You needed another guy that could get his own basket, right? Create stuff for himself, create stuff for other people. And what we saw tonight is it did work with Brogdon and Tatum on the court together and the addition of Jalen Brown back from the injury. So that's massive to be able to close games because ordinarily what we see is Derek White in the closing lineup. And tonight, Joe Mazzulla stuck with Malcolm Brogdon, which I think is big for this team going forward because if you look at it so far this season, there's a lot of games where they're close games. Brogdon will play like 23 minutes and Smart will play like 37 So it's big just to find a way to get Malcolm Brogdon into this closing lineup because we know how talented he is individually and we know his skill set is something that nobody else on the team besides Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have. So having those three guys on the court at the same time, having three threats that can not only create for themselves but can create for others is just massive going forward for this team. But you look at the offensive numbers in this game for the Celtics, they shot 39.8% from the field. They were at 43.5% in the finals. The worst team in the NBA this year is at 44.7%. So they were way worse than the Rockets, by the way. That's who that is. They were worse than they were in the finals last year. You look at the offensive rating. In the finals, it was at 105.6 points per 100 possessions. Tonight, it's at 104.3. The worst team this year is the Rockets at 109.3. The Celtics are at 104.3 tonight, okay? So five points worse. And we know the Celtics have the best offense in the league at 117.8. They also turned the basketball over 17 times, and they gave up 24 points off their turnovers. Okay, last year in the finals, the Celtics are at 16.8 turnovers per game. So right in that same area tonight at 17. The Warriors were last last year at 16.5, only team over 15. Okay, the Rockets this year are worst in the NBA at 16.8 turnovers per game. The Celtics had 17 tonight. The Celtics are the fifth fewest in terms of turnovers at 13.3, and they were at 17 tonight. And if you look at it, points off turnovers, 20.5 on the season in terms of the worst team, or I should say the worst team in the NBA this year is the Rockets at 21.6. The Celtics gave up 24 points off turnovers tonight. The Celtics are number one in the league. They only give up 15.2 tonight. They're at 24. So all these issues they had last year in the postseason offensively, the offensive rating was bad, the field goal percentage was bad, and the turnovers were bad. So all the issues you had against the Warriors last season, they all showed up again tonight. So if you have to play the Warriors again, I am petrified. So just like overall thoughts from this game. Important win because I think mentally the team needed it. You lose this game again. This is the narrative in town for the next couple of days. Now, we can talk about some of the issues as I did, but that's the narrative is the Celtics can't beat the Warriors. You don't want to see the Warriors again. So I think from just the team camaraderie standpoint and those guys in the locker room, they needed this. Number two, 
Warriors issues not fixed. You have not fixed your Warriors issues. Tatum has not fixed his Warriors issues. Jalen Brown has not fixed his Warriors issues. This team in general has not fixed their Warriors issues. And number three, don't want to see them in the finals. I want no part of the Warriors whatsoever. Like, this is an incredibly fun game. This game was drunk, basically, from the third quarter on. It was awesome to watch and all that, and I'm glad the Celtics won. I want no part of that team. And look, the Celtics, it's much more likely than they're getting to the finals than are the Warriors. The Warriors right now entered today seventh in the Western Conference. Now, they'll probably end up in the top six because one of the teams in front of them is the Utah Jazz. So they'll end up in that group, and they could come out of the West, but it's much more likely the Celtics do it than the Warriors. But if you're going to see a team out of the West, I do not want it to be the Golden State Warriors because it just seems like they have the Celtics numbers. Despite the fact that the Celtics won tonight, I fear that Warriors team. Okay, do not want any part of them whatsoever. Oh, one interesting note on the Celtics. This is really weird. So the Celtics this year are 7-0 and on back-to-backs. They're 24-5 and with one day of rest. Okay, so you're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. They're good on back-to-backs, whatever. I mean, you'd expect a loss in there somewhere, but one day rest, okay, 24-5. and Relatively young team, like the core of the team. On two days rest, they're now 2-6. and They were 1-6 and entering today. I don't know what that's about. Like, what are they, like... They forget how to play after having a couple days off. I don't understand what that is, but they got to figure that out. That two-day gap for whatever reason. It's just a weird quirk. Okay, I do want to get to some Bruins quickly here. So the Bees now after the win over the Rangers tonight, they're 36-5-4. Again, let me say that. The Bruins are 36-5-4. They won 3-1 to one tonight. You had the great goal early from Krejci, the self-pass, and then, or I should say the great goal from Zaka off Krejci. Krejci self-passes to himself, and you have Zaka with the tip. Zaka now since the extension, five points since signing the deal. And then I thought like, so the Bruins get a five on three early in this game in the first period and Bergeron missed one point blank from that bumper position. Marshawn set him up perfectly. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, Shosturkin with a really nice save later on in that power play, that five on three, I should say. And you felt like, okay, maybe the Warriors are going to, the Warriors, maybe the Rangers are going to come back after this just because of the fact that that's sort of like a momentum shift, but no. The Bees are able to win this game. You have an unbelievable save from Swayman at the end of the first period on Kreider, which I felt like was really big. And Swayman, look, I mean, Olmark's been the story of the season from a goalie perspective, but Swayman's played really well lately. And then Bergeron, just an absolute laser, blocker side to take the 2 to nothing lead. And then Connor Clifton late in this game, or I should say in the third period, gets the feed from Marshawn after the turnover from the Rangers. And they end up winning. The Rangers get a late goal, but you win this thing. Three to one on a back to back after playing the Islanders the night before. The Rangers have been playing really good coming in to tonight. The Rangers were six, two, and two in their last ten. So they've been playing really good hockey. We know that's a really talented team. I mean, they were one of the favorites to win the Stanley Cup before the season. So just a real professional win from the Bruins tonight. And the other thing I mentioned is this like we talk about the power play, the Bruins on the season, third in the power play. The penalty kill, they're number one in the league by a wide margin. They're at eighty six point seven percent. The Jets are second at 84.3, so that's a wide gap. And you look at it against the Islanders on Wednesday, 0 of 6 were the Islanders on the power play. Now, they should have scored in the last one. They just missed a wide open net. But nonetheless, they're 0 of 6 on the power play. And then the Rangers tonight are 0 of 3. So just flat-out stupid stuff from the Bruins as they continue to pile up wins and continue on this historic pace. Oh, I did want to get to this. Let's get to our greatest Boston bet of the week brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. So I keep mentioning the Hart Trophy with Pasta and his chance to get it. So right now, 
Connor McDavid is at minus 310 because he, he has such a huge lead in terms of points right now, in terms of the NHL points leader. He's like a, a 20 point lead. So he's at minus 310, but Pasta's at plus 1500. So the Bruins continue on this historic pace. It's worth putting down some money on that plus 1500 for Pasta to win the Hart Trophy. And then the Rocket Richard Trophy, he's at plus 185. This is a pretty good bet as well. You think about it right now. So Pasta's at 35 goals, and I have the Oilers on in the background right now. And Mar- and you just got a goal from McDavid. So he's now up to 39. But 39 goals for McDavid as we're recording right now at 11.23 p.m. He could easily have another goal tonight against the Lightning. And you have Pasta at 35. But that's definitely worth it, plus 185. And for the Hart Trophy, why not? Plus 1,500. That's a huge payday if you get that. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we'll chat with Julian McWilliams of the Globe. Get into some socks. We'll get into the Duvall move. And as I mentioned, he has a great story about the Bogart signing to the San Diego Padres. We'll get to that next year. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the globe, it is Julian McWilliams. Julian, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. Hey, man, appreciate it. I'm a fan of the show. So it's it's uh, you guys do good work over here. So I'm, I'm excited. Appreciate it, man. So, hey, let's start with this before we get into some of the latest with this Red Sox team. So. For the people that didn't see your article last month, you saw Heim Bloom catching his plane from San Diego after the winter meetings. Now, this is right after Xander Bogart signs with the San Diego Padres. You described Heim as shell-shocked and stunned, and I encourage people to go back and read the article if they missed it. But what was that whole experience like? I mean, we're talking about the pillar of the organization, the leader, and you have the guy that's in charge of the team realizing he just signed with the San Diego Padres. What was that like? Yeah, it's so funny. Like I, in those situations, like when you see somebody like in, in, I guess, like in this situation, like at an airport, like you try to sort of give them their space in terms of like, you know, you don't want to be like all up on the guy. I mean, I, it's, like, it's kind of an awkward situation anyway, right? It's like they're probably like, oh, this is the media. I have to watch what I'm saying. I have to watch what I'm doing. And so you kind of just try to have them give them that space. So me and Haim actually walked through uh, the TSA together. So like we were actually, he was like, he, it's, it's so funny. Like there was a person in between us and he thought me and Heim were like friends. So he's like, Oh, you can skip me and, and go ahead of me. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> I was, and so I was like, he's not my boy like that, but you know, yeah, he, he, he probably doesn't want me to skip. So in that situation, so I saw him and he was sitting there with um Mike. He was with, I think it was with Mike Groupin, who's also in the, um, the front office and they were going through. And so then I went through TSA and I just kind of like, just, just went about my way because I didn't want to feel like I was hounding him. But then he walked into the Delta Sky Club, which which where I was at, and I was sitting at the bar actually. And um, he walks by me, and we have a little chit chat. And then he goes and um, goes out into like this this sort of like this outward this outdoor area of like the Sky Club and sits down with his with his team. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, and all of a sudden I see it come on my phone. Xander Bogart signs with the you know Padres such and such 280 million i'm like gosh i gotta i I gotta ask this guy something it's not what i want to do but like you kind of have to and so i it's like this long walk 
like to where Haim is and he sees me coming. Everybody sees me come. It's like the most awkward thing ever. And I'm like, hey, like, do you have time to comment? And at first he was like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to really comment on that. And then he kind of thought about it for a second. And then so he was like, all right, just, just give me, just give me, give, give me a minute. Like I'll, I'll, I'll comment on it. I'm like, okay. I'm like, do you want to do it here in the sky club? Or do you want me to meet you at the terminal? And he was like, uh, meet me near the terminal. So I get to the terminal. I'm just sitting there, right? We're, our, our flight boards in like 20, 25 minutes. And, and, and so literally like his group of front office people are like walking toward where I am. And I'm kind of sitting like in between the terminal, I guess. I didn't like in case like there was like other media there, like other, you know, there was like a couple more media people there uh, from, from, uh, from the winter meetings. I was like, ah, I kind of really need this exclusive kind of thing. So I sat in, I sat like probably like 30 or like probably a few uh, gates down and I, and Heim was waiting, like I was waiting for Heim to get his stuff together, like his, get his sorts together. So I'm now at that point, like, I'm like, are we ready to go? And like, like, can I go now? He's like, give me a minute. And like, so like I said, people misconstrue it. Like I read a couple of people saying like, oh, well, is he literally sitting like watch, watching this guy? It's like, no, bro. Like I'm waiting to do an interview. Like that's 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 what the whole thing is, and this guy's literally I don't, like it was like a like he was trying to he was literally trying to figure out like get himself together and like figure out like the right words to say. And granted, like they knew that a deal was going down, right? But at the same time, when it happens, it's something completely different, right? Especially like the numbers that they saw. Now I I know that they knew a deal was going down, but they did not know that Xander was going to get that amount of money. So that's another element to it too. So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for Heim to like say, okay, like let's go. And he's just like kind of just staring out into space for about this one or probably about a minute or so. And it was kind of awkward because it's like you're sitting there with your phone. You're like, and it's, you don't know what to do. It's like, uh, and this is like kind of a, it, it's, it's a great get like, but for me, but so at that point, I'm just like, okay, like, if he's going to sit here and basically have a moment for himself in this, in this full out and, you know, experience in this, in this, in this uh, airport, my job as a reporter is to look at his body language, see what he's doing. Like I, I should at least get something out of this little awkward interaction. Right. Like it should, something should come out of this. So I was like, okay, so let me paint a little bit of a picture. Now um, is that, was that picture sort of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say embellished, but it was, it was, you know, it was sort of had like a bit of creativity to it because I mean, that's granted, that's our job, but certainly he was sitting there and he was definitely, definitely shell shocked by the, by just having to having the news hit. And, 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 I, and I'll stand by that. You know, I think obviously for him to speak in that moment, I, I give him props for that because the one thing I could say about Heim is Heim has always been available. He doesn't really run from anything. Um, but at the same time, like, for me to see that happen in real time, I mean, it was like, okay, like this is a moment, like this is a guy that is going back to Boston. Like keep in mind, Xander's signing with the city that like he's leaving. And now you hop on a red eye. And the first thing when you hop off in the morning is going to be like at 6 a.m. And everybody just going to wake up to the news of like Xander's no longer here. So like, I think that's, that was a, that was a pivotal time in, in, in the Bloom era certainly that winter meetings experience, I think that, um, you know, for better, you know, for maybe, you know, for better or worse, he, he might be defined by, but I think 
it was definitely, definitely an awkward interaction for, for both of us. But at the end of the day, I think the fact that he did speak in that moment, just literally like three, four, five minutes after it happened. I mean, I give him, I give him credit for that because a lot of people, um, I don't think would have done that, but it was certainly definitely experience. And I was just sitting there. I was like, man, this is, this is, this is definitely, definitely kind of awkward. But at the same time, like, look, this is a franchise pillar and kudos to him, the, the emotion behind it, like his voice literally trembling and all that stuff. I mean, you, you, you really, I, I think that was the first moment, if anything, where you saw Haim um, uh, show some sense of vulnerability. And, and, and that's the kind of the message I want to get across is that like, cause people a lot of times seem as a robot, right? You get rid of Mookie Betts, you know, you get rid of uh, Xander now, you know, you, you, uh, the luxury, you get, I have to get on the luxury tax. You, you know, you don't, you let, let all these like homegrown talents walk and people are like, who is this guy? Is it like, he's, is he that much of like a computer? And so in that moment, I think you saw a human side of him that you necessarily haven't really seen during his tenure. Yeah. And like I said, I encourage people to go back and read that article because it is crazy, all the details that you had about that whole situation. But so the one thing I would say about Haim is it is crazy that he showed that emotion there. The one critique I would have him and look, you can totally understand not signing Bogarts to $280 million, right? Like I totally understand that. But the one critique I would have is I wonder why the organization and in particular Haim said it too, that their number one priority was bringing Xander back, right? When we know prior to last year, they offered him the one extra year. I wonder why they would say like that's their number one priority if they know there's going to be a big, robust market. And we knew that prior to last season and during the season, Bogart said, hey, I, I know I said I didn't want to talk contract, but I will talk contract. Like it just doesn't add up to me that he actually was their number one priority. So I just wonder why they did that, because that would only anger the fan base more. You know what I'm saying, Julian? Like, that's how yeah, I feel. Like, yeah. I don't know why they did that. Yeah, I, I, I think it goes back to Heim just totally, completely underestimated the market right and i think having teams like the mets and 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 san diego padres out there spending money is really really putting these gms in a situation where they're and and owners right at first first and foremost like where there's like holy crap do we have to like we might have to spend a little bit more and i think this was this was the time like i think like you said i wouldn't have given bogart 280 million dollars i don't think many people would have given him 280 i don't think any teams would have given 280 million dollars but the fact that you that that you guys were so short at 90 million, that just shows that like you've completely underestimated the market. And I will say this too. I think a lot of times what we're seeing with with uh, with GMs, I think now is that you automatically assume if they come from the Rays, it's like, oh, like they can they can put together a winner because they've done it with this amount of money and XYZ. It's different when you have money, right? It's 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 sort of like this yeah. analysis by paralysis thing. And I think when you have the money, you know, and I'm not saying this is Heim, but it's it's shown that like, you know, through some of the deals that he's made that like, look, it's a, it's a process. It, people think like Dave Dombrowski was out there just throwing money. Sure, you can say that. But where he did throw money, it worked. Right. And I think there's a skill to being able to identify talent and saying, OK, we're going to give this guy the money to, 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 to go with. That. I think there's there's a there's a gut instinct that goes with that. There's not necessarily this like methodical sort of tactful approach there there is but there has to be some okay kind of we're going for it and i don't think Haim has necessarily showed that to this point i mean he showed it probably with the devers move but that seems like something that you had to do at yeah. that point granted you don't give it to anybody 313 million dollars you know just because you have to do it he's obviously earned that 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 money but at the same time i think you're just looking at a guy that completely completely underestimated the market and the market has changed underneath the, the eyes of so many of these gms you know what i mean where it's like because 
a lot of teams didn't go out there and spend this spent this 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 offseason. It's just been the main teams of like the Mets, uh, 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 the Padres that have sort of shifted the landscape of baseball. And I think in conjunction with Han, um, um, uh, uh, sort of underestimating the market, you're now looking at a situation again, like I said, where teams like the San Diego Padres and Mets are spending, and and now it's like, geez, like we have to we have to come up with something here. So. I think it's a shame that he's not here. I think obviously he wanted to be a Red Sox. Um, you know, Alex Cora called him last week the best shortstop he thinks in, in Red Sox history, whatever, you know, you want to debate that with Nomar with whatever thing like that. But I, I get that. Obviously, Nomar was a top-tier talent. But I just think what Xander meant to the, to, to the organization and how young he was when he came up through the organization. I mean, if there's somebody that you're looking at to be a leader from, from, a, from a, a character standpoint – from a genuine, but he treated everybody the same, right? Right. In a, in, in a good way. It wasn't like he had favorites or anything like that, but everybody in the media, he treated the exact same, you know, and you have guys that like, that don't do that. You have guys that kiss up to Ken Rosenthal when he comes in or kiss up to, you know, uh, 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 the guys that they know matter in the business that they see on TV. But the beat writers is sort of like, you have this sort of, uh, you know, flipping attitude with that was never Xander with anything. Like, if he was if he was treating Ken Rosenthal away, he was treating you away. It was the same exact way. So it, it, that that's hard to come by. And, and and the fact that he he excelled, it's almost like a, a I wouldn't I wouldn't obviously LeBron's in his own category, right? But if you're looking at LeBron come through the system, because I'm a big basketball guy. If you look if you look through LeBron come through the system of like, I guess you know doing everything the right way, uh, living up to expectations. Um, plus more exceeding expectations. I think in, in a general sense, when you're looking at it from Xander and how hyped he was as a prospect and what he, what he did for the organization, two-time world series champion, you know, multiple uh, silver sluggers and, and four-time all-star, he did what he had to do plus more. And it's hard for guys to, to, to come in and not only just live up to, not only just uh, uh, respond to the hype, but then live up to it. That's a, that's a, that's a different, that takes a different breed. Yeah. And it just feels like it was so avoidable. Like we had the reporting that came totally. out, I believe, I believe from who was it? Alex Spear had the report that, hey, he would have accepted something similar to the El Tuve deal, like one for 151 yeah. or or I mean, five for 151, five for 161. And they didn't get just the deal give, done, which just, is just give me more of this. What story has? Like, yeah, that, that's I mean, just, that's what it, that's what it has. Like it was coming to like, oh, you want to recruit? You want to recruit another shortstop? OK, if since you think I'm a, if, since you think I'm if you want to build around me, give me more than this guy. Because yeah. I've I've certainly earned it, and then, and then you become with that just that extra year at ninety million, that's a slap in the face. And at yeah. that point, I, you know, I wouldn't blame Xander. And he came back. He said he said I would be open to negotiations, but in that in that in that sense, like I, I wouldn't have blamed Xander if he said no. I want to take this free agency. I'm not talking at all anymore. I don't. I'm not. I'm not interested in that. But that's never been Xander ever. Yeah, that's where I legit feel bad for Bogarts because he clearly wanted to be here. <laughs> and like you mentioned, yeah. he recruited the guy and you offer him less, less money guy. than the guy you recruited. It's unreal. So I do want to get to the latest move this team makes, because obviously we get the news stories, needs the elbow surgery. And then you have Adam Duvall. So he gets a one year, seven million dollar contract. And I know you wrote about Duvall and you added a, a what, like a week ago that the Red Sox were linked to Adam Duvall and it ends up that he signs here. So the thing that sticks out to me is I feel like this is a nice recovery for Haim in this sense is Kike Hernandez is going to have to play short now and Kike will be fine at short. He's been fine there throughout his career, but he was an elite defensive center fielder and right. the defense without Kike was going to be 
Yoshida, who's not known for his defense, Duran, who certainly is not known for his, <laughs> his defense, and yeah. Verdugo, who had a bad defensive season last year. So you're thinking, yeah. okay, well, if you can't, if Kike's going to play short, then maybe you can get an outfielder instead of going out to, on the market and getting a shortstop. And Duvall, so he strikes out a ton. We know that. But two years ago, 38 home runs, same amount as Rafael Devers. So, and defensively, two years ago, he won the gold glove and he had 19 defensive yeah. run saves tied for the most amongst outfielders. So with this story news, and look, with Duvall, we're projecting with injuries, right? Like he's dealt with injuries. He's just coming off an injury. But I do actually think this is a fairly nice recovery for the Red Sox. And for like the first time in forever, they were linked to a guy and they actually landed the guy. Yeah, I think it, I think it goes back to like the, the old, like sort of the... the I don't want to harp on like the the Dombrowski thing, but when he was here, it was like we need a starting pitcher, we need this, we need that, and like <laughs> he told you what literally he needed, right? And it, and so I think with with uh, uh with time, it sometimes it becomes like, dude, you're getting too cute, man. Like you're overthinking this. Like you need a center fielder, go get a center fielder. And so like this was like one of the times where it's like, okay, we need an outfielder because obviously we don't have a shortstop now. So let's go get an outfielder. And, and 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 in this situation, I think it works. Now, I think a big the big a big question mark too is like how will Kike hold up at shortstop? Right, like he's hasn't played that much over the years. I mean, he's coming off a, a hip injury and stuff like that. Actually, actually, his range is going to be tested now because of you know there's no shifts and 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 how that works with a, maybe a Christian Arroyo. Um, that's going to draw a question mark. I think this would sort of play to story strengths a little bit more because you'd be able to see his range. Um, if anything, you know, his arm obviously was the issue, but if anything, you would have seen his range and, 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 and the way he played at second base last year, seeing him go get balls and in the hole sometimes, basically sometimes even cover for Xander, you know, in a 94 yeah. games that he did play. Um, but now you don't, you, you don't have that. And now you're, you're depending on a guy that's uh, sort of been sort of is, is effective in this, I think, is 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 the, is at his best when he's in that sort of that bench role but now he's forced to play every day he's been for he's he's played every day obviously when he's been healthy but now you're you're forced to play shortstop every day that's that's a different type of beast so i think we're going to look at a situation where we're going to have to see what happens obviously kike is a, a sure-handed person player at shortstop sure-handed infielder he's a great defender um but like you said i think i think for heim to to, to land on duvall it's like okay at least we have a little bit of bit of focus because us screw, them screwing around with Franchi Cordero and, and and Christian Arroyo and well he never played outfield but he's going to play outfield now and you know Franchi Cordero we're going to put him in center field because uh, you know he has range or we're going to put him in left or or at first base like it doesn't matter even though you never played first base like let's not overthink the situation let's get to a point where you can just look at it and say okay we need an outfielder let's get an outfielder and obviously Han did that. Yeah, and then they signed Tapia to a minor league deal. I look at that as just depth. It's kind of funny looking depth, at yeah. like the difference between Duvall and Tapia. Like Duvall has the lowest ground ball rate in Major League Baseball over the past three seasons, and Tapia has the highest ground ball rate over the past three seasons. So it's just kind of a funny thing to look at. But I think that's more just depth than anything else, Julian. So that does bring me to Alex Verdugo, because I mentioned earlier, I had a bad defensive season, like across the board, batting average on base percentage, slugging percentage, all those numbers down. The defense was down as well. And people always bring up like the expected slugging and all that. I'm like, well, the guy hits yeah. the ball on the ground all the lot. Like, what exactly. do you, what do you, what do you think's going to happen? The guy hits the ball to the ground all the time, exactly. but I am wondering, so they avoid arbitration. They agree on a deal, but he's got one more year 
of arbitration. Like, could we see, is this Verdugo's possible last year here? Do you think there's any chance they would move on from Verdugo prior to the season? Do you think they still have faith that this guy can turn into the player? Maybe they thought they were getting when they traded for Mookie because he just, he hasn't been consistent. And last year, I thought that was a really disappointing season for him. Yeah. I, I definitely think they would move on from him. Uh, I definitely think, in, in fact, I, I know, I know for, for, for in some certain that there's people within the organization that are like, Hey, like maybe we should move on from him, you know, now before it's a little bit too late. Right. I think mm. you're looking at a guy that's, I think he is who he is, you know, and, and he, he's a role player. He's a, he's a, he's a good player. He's an average player on a, on, on, he's an average player across the board, good player, good, solid player, but, He's not going to move the needle a little bit in terms of if you, if you have a, if he's not the guy that you're going to look to and say, okay, you know, take us there. Right. I don't think he'll ever be that guy. I don't think he'll ever be an all-star. I don't think, I think he's just a solid player. And to your point, um, uh, um, you know, last year in a sense, yeah, he got to sort of his numbers at the end of the time, but at the end of the season, but if you look at it in its totality, it was, it was sort of a, a down year for him. And I think you're looking at a guy that's, uh, um, had question had has had question marks about his work ethic has had question marks about his um 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 character and um you know there were there were a couple times last year where we can say that you know um those were those work ethic questions were indeed like a question mark even for the red sox right it's like you know even him running out ground balls and and, and sometimes when he should be on second and he's just on first base those are just things that don't sort of translate to this, to this, to, 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 to you be, to, to a team winning. Right. Um, so I think, look, he's a clutch player. I think he lives for the moment. I think if you get him to a playoff time, you know, it's, 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 it's like, let's go, but there's 162 game season. And I think that was the first year where it's like, you know, crap, like I got to do this 162 game thing again. Right. Like, and, 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 and I think there have been, there have been the Dodgers question his character, you know, and, and he wouldn't, he would have remained a Dodger if, you know, there weren't questions about, you know, him as a person. And granted, he's been great with the media. He's been great with, with us. He's always available. Um, you know, he gives, he gives excellent quotes. He's probably the greatest, he probably the best quote on the team. <laughs> However, there are, there are, there are question marks in terms of, in terms of if, if, if he really wants this or not. And if he can really, turn into being a ball player. He's getting to his prime age. Alex, Alex Corey even called him out publicly last year and saying, yeah. we need to get this guy somewhere. You know what I mean? Cause he's getting at that point in his career where it's like, who are you? And for Alex to do that, you know, there was something he, Alex is very tactful. He, he's, it comes from a media background. He's so he's very, he's, he's very, very skilled in, in, in terms of putting players out there and calling them out in certain situations. And he did that with Alex. I'm a Verdugo. He said, "Look, we need more from this guy. Like, he, who is he? Is he going to be this, this, this player who's just like, oh yeah, he's he's a good player. Is he going to turn into some type of player that 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 can be effective us and and and, and translate to winning? Um, but it all falls on him. And uh, but I, to, to, but to your point, I, I I I wouldn't be surprised if there's an Alex Verdugo if there if there's an Alex Verdugo trade uh, this year. Yeah, I wouldn't either. And it too, like, it's a good point about like. He is clutch. He came up with that huge hit against the Yankees, like one of the best oh games I've seen. Yeah, it's totally like looking at him and like, I don't know if there's another person I want up in that situation. I'm like, oh, like he's he's definitely in this right now. Like you can tell he gets up for those situations. But 
it's the game in Tampa in the middle of August when it's like, dang, do I, you know, and your team is, you know, uh, sort of been this up and down team. How do you come into that situation? Because we know how Xander comes into that situation. Let's yep. go. Let's call. Let's like, what are we doing? Like, let's, let's get out there on the field. Let's let's that. That's the type of player that you want. Um, we know it. We know what, what Mookie bring. We knew it. We knew it would even a Ben attendee bring the situation every day. He was there. He didn't say much, but every day he was there. Central five came, boom, he was ready to play. And, yeah. and the question Alex is like, are you ready to play? Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing, too, because you can see it like he has great bat to ball skills. He doesn't strike out much. He hits high velocity, but it's just where is the consistency? Like it's in there. It's just and last year I'm with you, man. He he was out of shape. I mean, there's no way around it. That's why his oh. defensive number slipped. He he did not look like the same guy. Like he didn't look he came, athletic he came, at all. He came in. He came into spring training overweight. Yeah, like, he was I mean, like it was like, geez, like who's. Like who's this guy? Like it's, you know, I, I think he like if you go back and look at like when he first came over to the Red Sox, so where he was last season, completely different body. Yeah, so he I was, think that's he was like oh he was like wiry before. You know what I mean? Yeah, like and this yeah. year he's like I don't know for lack of a better term he was almost like doughy, which you didn't expect to see from him. But so I want to ask you about Tanner Houck because I feel like this has been a fascinating offseason for Houck. So like when these rumors came up about Miami and like trading for a possible starting pitcher, I'm like, well, why is Tanner Houck involved? Like they don't want starting pitching, they don't want pitching. They, they're looking for big league bats, right? That's why like Cassis's name came up, which we knew the Red Sox were never going to make that trade. But if you look at this right now and you start to look at the rotation, you have Sale, you have Paxton, you have Kluber, you have Pavetta, and we know Whitlock's going to be in the rotation. And then if you look at the bullpen, Jansen's going to be the closer. They picked up Martin, who's going to be a high leverage guy, and Schreiber's a high leverage guy, right? So now, yeah. obviously, you can use depth for your starters, considering like all your starters are old as crap, with the exception of like Whitlock and Pavetta. But like, it feels like Tanner Houck's in a really weird spot. Like, I almost feel like the reason they're telling us that they're building him up as a starter is maybe as trade bait. Like, I almost feel like Tanner Houck's biggest value to the value rather to the Red Sox going further, maybe as a trade piece rather than actually a member of this organization. Where are you kind of at with Houck right now? I, I listen. I, I like Houck, Houck a lot, especially as a. Um, I think as a reliever, his stuff is nasty. I think he has like the the heartbeat of a reliever too. He he actually has the heartbeat of 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 a. Of a Nothing really affects Hauk. And that's the thing I like about him is that like he's sort of this like this um I wouldn't say uh for for uh I, I guess for for Patriots fans, they, they probably wouldn't like this, but like this like Eli Manning effect where it's like, <laughs> Am I really playing in the Super Bowl? Like is this, is this like oh, okay, I just thought I thought this was like week one. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's like this really like this never really changes. I think there was a situation last year where uh and I'll get back. I'll get back to your question, but like where where Hauk was, uh, they were playing in New York, and I don't know how he got out of his bases loaded jam. I think it was it was it was at Yankee Stadium, and it was loud, like it was extremely loud. And I was like, I remember this. Like, he hit a guy, hit a guy, then like yeah. he overthrew the ball. I think, and then he got yeah. out of it somehow. <laughs> like, and that's just Tanner. Like nothing really, really gets to, gets him. But to your point, like if 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 there's a guy that. I think that has enough projectability left in terms of like, is he a starter? Is he a reliever? This is a fascinating guy with stuff that's like out of this world when it's on. Like, can we make this guy into, uh, at the very least, you're going to get a, a dominant, I think, uh, uh, um, long, 
uh, um, sort of uh, a reliever that can go multiple innings, right? I yeah. think at the very least you're going to get that. Um, however, it's also like the enticing the enticing fact of like is he a starter too? You know that they're not going to get rid of Whitlock because they just signed him to whatever they signed him to. But Hauk, like you said, is an interesting case, and I think if you do if 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 you do go into a season and you're getting something from the rotation, you're getting something from the bullpen. You've already that that you've already stocked up. Hauk certainly, I think, brings back the most value um, from a team that 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 is looking um, sort of to get over the hump, beat in the rotation or at the. I could definitely see Hauk being a number five starter somewhere, right? I can definitely see yeah. him being a lockdown. I could for sure see him being a lockdown reliever that can win, you know, games in the postseason. Because I said, like I said, I don't think he gets. He's not affected by anything. Um, so to your point, I think I think that's definitely somebody that you can look at and be like, okay, you know, they can move on from him and get some value back in major league depth. Not even not because because a lot of times with the Red Sox, it's been like, oh, we're gonna get you know uh, two minor leaguers. It's their number, you know, twenty second ranked prospect and, and and their 18th ranked prospect, and now we're gonna get him like a in our in our in our in our um, organization. But with Hauk, I think you can certainly get a, get the bat that you need from a major league depth or another arm. And I think that, that that's, that's where, you know, cause you look at sale, that's not somebody that they'll, that, that really brings any value. Paxton obviously doesn't bring any value. Pavetta might bring value though. And if you were to go to somewhere out there, yeah. at least I know, I know for sure the Minnesota twins have, have interest in, 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 in Pavetta just because mm. they like his stuff. So that's a name I think that, that, that you should certainly watch out for, but but if you're talking about who will bring back the most value, I think it would major league value, I think it would be somebody like Tanner Howe. Yeah, and maybe, too, there's like a rebuilding type team that says, hey, maybe this guy can be a front-end starter in the next couple of years for us. Maybe they believe in the stuff that much. Because you're right. I mean, the, <laughs> the slider is absolutely filthy. The two-seamer is filthy. He's got it's nasty, gross. nasty stuff. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. I did want to get to Tristan Cassis, though, before we let you go, because, like, I'm all in on the Tristan Cassis bandwagon. Like, you there? I remember, yeah, <laughs> like last year when he's out you there. Like just, the walks? Yeah, well, I love the walks. <laughs> I love, love the, the walks, walk? and I, I like the sunbathing. Like, the dudes out here, like, you got to have a lot of confidence to before a major league game. Like, this is your not even your rookie season, technically. You just got called up. Your sunbathing. Yeah, you're sunbathing on the field. Like, I'm sure some of the other players are like, what the hell is this guy doing? I, I mean, I asked Cora about it when I verbatim. had him on the pod. Yeah. Verbatim. Oh, they, verbatim. they said that? <laughs> Ver verbatim. A player walked out and said, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> and you just see him just, like, sunbathing. It's like... Dude, my mom, my mom, it's funny. My mom, uh, she knows nothing about baseball, but uh, I sent her the picture. I think, I think uh, Brad, Bradford had, Rob Bradford had it on his Instagram. I sent him, I mean, I mean, on his Twitter of him like sunbathing. And so from now on, my mom's like, that's my favorite player. She knows nothing about baseball. <laughs> like, that's, and she calls him sunshine. Like, she's like, what's, what's sunshine doing? And so, <laughs> so that's like, a good nickname. Yeah. So, like, she always like whenever she's asked about the Red Sox, she's like, "What about Sunshine?" She's like, "You need players like that. You need players to sort of keep it, keep a loose, a loose, uh, loosey goosey feel." Like he like again, like his confidence, like you said, is out of this world. And and it's like sometimes you're like, "All right, dude, you might need to relax a little bit." But I I, I love it. I, I think this team needs a little bit of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think they need a, I need I think they need that that sort of like that assertiveness, that that assurance and. Casas has been that way since he's been. I remember interviewing him in, in when he was at AA Portland, and I was like, and I said, and I said, and I was like, 
posing a question. I was like, yeah, you know, you know, the goal is to get to the big leagues. And he was like, and he stopped me. He's like, nah, 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 bro. Like, my goal is not to get to the big leagues. My goal is to get to the big leagues and be a superstar. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, I, I, I can get with that. So, like, uh, <laughs> again, like, I think he's he has a little bit of that Tanner Houck where it's like supreme confidence, doesn't really know where he's at. Doesn't really, like, it's like, I'm, what do you mean? The sun's out? Like, I can't do this? Like, I can't walk around with my shirt off at Fenway Park? But, like, <laughs> like I th- and, and I think, like, again, like, this team needs a little bit of, like, of, of, of that, of that, and, and he's serious, too, right? He's very, very serious. Like, yeah. he goes through these visualization things. Like, it's not all show. Like, this is what that guy does. And, and, and I think he definitely has the right mentality the Red Sox definitely think he has the right mentality, or else they wouldn't even got rid of rid of Hosmer. I mean, he had, he definitely has the right mentality of, of 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 what it takes, I think, to be a big leaguer, and he and he 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 invests himself totally in it. Yeah, and I think it's just important too. I mean, you mentioned the walks, twenty percent walk rate when he came up. Only Aaron Judge had a higher walk rate, and that's because teams are like completely pitching around Aaron Judge. And then if you look at his home runs, like we know the batting average was not good, but he still somehow managed a three fifty eight on base percentage because he was. Walking yeah. so much. But if you look at like his home run percentage, he was at, what was it? 5.3%. So that's higher than Otani, who had 34 home runs. Now, don't go nuts. I'm yeah. not saying that he's Otani or something. Right. I'm not saying. Sample size here, man. Right, sample right. <laughs> but I do, I do think that like this could, if the Red Sox are going to be sort of punchy this season and be competitive, I do think they, they need 25 to 30 home runs from Cassis. Like I think he's really important. And I think he's actually really important, not just for this year. But maybe he's the most important player in the organization, like going forward, because I feel like Meyer is going to be a hit. Like I'm convinced mm-hmm. of that, right? And we know you have Devers locked up, right, for the foreseeable future for 331 million. I do feel like Cassis could be that like third piece going forward in terms of that trio of players. So I do think it's a really important year for him in the organization. And the Red Sox believe that 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 he that he can tap into this power, right? I think they think that he's has more power there. You know, Alex Corey mentioned, I remember mentioned, uh, mentioned him during one of the meetings. I was like, look, like he's had like a lower, a lot of lower body stuff. He looked a little heavy last year. That's basically what I was, imp- basically what I was implying. I was like, I was basically implying that he was overweight a little bit. And, and, and uh, he's like, yeah, you know, like that's what we've been working on him with this off season is like mm. getting him into big league shape, right? Like having him understand that, like, certainly if you have your hitting process, you have this process, but like, well, you know how it is with younger guys. Like, you you know, you come into the big leagues, like, you, you're probably eating anything because you're on the road and stuff like that all the time in the minor leagues and getting McDonald's, whatever, like, you know, whatever you can get your hands on. And you come to the major leagues and you're a little bit overweight, you know, and, and, and you know, because you're not used to that, that, that sort of that, that, that routine of, 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 of your body being this sort of this investment. And so now I think they've explained to, 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 to Tristan, like, look, like, this is what it takes to be in the big leagues. This is what it takes to, to, to 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 stay in the big leagues, this is what it takes to, to to maintain health. And he said, with that, I think they think that he'll be able to tap into more power. And if you look at the walk rate, like you said, you know him missing them, him not hitting probably had a lot to do with like him not being experienced. But again, the more pitches you take, and the more pitches to your point that are that are out of the zone that you take, and you stay within your zone, um, I think I think more times than not, you're going to end up being successful. And I think he definitely has a sort of the mental approach uh, to be successful in the big leagues because he doesn't look at any situation like it's bigger than him. Like it's, it's just like, he's here to play. He deserves to be there. 
Um, he's not one of these guys that like sort of hides in the locker room and, 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 and you, you, you don't, you can't really miss him, right? There's that presence yeah. about him. Um, six, five, 200 and what some odd 40 pounds or something like that. Like you can't miss the guy. So I think if you're looking at a situation, uh, um, this year, I, I think this is going to be an interesting year for him because it's saying it, even though he's 23, I think this can be a sort of a breakout for year for him and, and for the Red Sox to be like, get a little bit more definition of saying, okay, what do we really have here with the full season of Tristan Casas? Because I remember a scout told me, look, it takes you like 500. I was like 500, 600 plate appearances for us to really understand. Okay. What does this guy do? What can, how can he get better in this sense? He had what 200 and some on plate. Appearance. Like it was, it was very, I may, maybe had even less than that. Didn't play yeah, that 95. many games. Yeah. 95 plate appearances. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't do anything. Like that yeah. doesn't show us anything. Right. And that, and that small sample size we saw, okay. He has the ability to walk. He doesn't, he's not, he's still not chasing pitches out of his zone in this, in this area, even though toward the latter toward the season, I think Cora mentioned that he started chasing a little bit, bit more. Um, but if you're looking at a guy that can stay within his zone and crush the ball, which he's, which he's shown he can do at every level. I think you have you have the making of at least a, a very very good good productive big league. I'm excited. Him and Bayo, those are my two like guys oh, that I yeah. cannot I cannot wait to watch those guys. And I would say like in a ranked third would be Whitlock as a starter, like because I felt like it was unfair last year when he got into the rotation. He wasn't setting up his off season to be a starter. He was in the bullpen. So those would be my three things that let, I'm looking forward me, to the most. Let, let me ask you this: Do you do you? feel because like there's a lot of people that back and forth do you feel he's more of a starter or or a reliever because obviously when he wasn't a starter last year you saw how valuable he was uh, when he was a starter last year you saw how valuable he was to the bullpen when they didn't have him yeah I feel like there's nothing wrong with being Andrew Miller right that gives you like two yeah. innings every time he goes out there so like I know he has that but so I think like I would be fine with that role, but I don't blame Haim and Cora, who whoever's behind this decision, giving him an opportunity to start because it's like, all right, you might as like he's got the he's got the stuff first of all, yeah, and he's got like the mindset to be a starter. Like he's just got to figure out how to navigate the lineup a second or, and more importantly, a third time through. So I'm fine yeah. with them giving him this opportunity, especially now that. I know Red Sox fans don't like to hear this, but it does kind of feel like a bridge year, right? It's it feels like now yeah. 2013 was a, was they signed all these veterans too, the Napoli's, the Gomeses, the Shane Victorinos. Now I'm not saying they're winning the World Series, but they could be better than people think. But I don't mind trying things out this year with some of these young pitchers. So are you against it, Whitlock, in the rotation? I just I just I just kind of saw his value. I just felt like last year. I, mean, I think it's I think this year did they have more wiggle room to do it. I think last year with with how, you know, I think depleted the bullpen was and, and granted a lack of lack of depth out there, lack of effective, effective relievers that you can go to. I mean, who they really have. I think if you go through Whitlock, Schreiber who came up, I mean, those they, they use Schreiber so much. Like if they, like if there's a if there's a person who should like the first person who should apply for like overtime pay in baseball, I think it should be like John Schreiber. Because <laughs> like gassed. they were working him. He was gassed. He was yeah. gassed. Totally gassed. His stuff, and he started missing really, really bad. I think the uh, when he his his outing in Baltimore uh, against Baltimore in 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 Williamsport last year, that was a point where I was like, okay, this guy is shot. You know, they've yeah. used him way too much. But I think this year, I'm not against it. Last year, I was because yeah. I just didn't think they had the depth. This well, year, I think they had the depth to be able to do it a little bit more. And last year, it didn't make 
sense not to put him back in the bullpen. Like, I understood him making a spot start yeah. in Toronto, but put him back in the bullpen. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I'm just glad we won't have to watch Jake Walkman this year. That was, I, that was, I, I had had enough of that. I mean, that was so painful. Every time this guy, yeah, Jake Deakman, I call him Walkman. He walks the ballpark. Jake <laughs> I mean, it was it was like on cue every time. And I felt bad for core. It's like, well, this is supposed to be a high leverage reliever. You signed in the offseason. The guy was absolutely atrocious. So I'm glad he Terrible. is elsewhere. I mean, even if it works for him somewhere else sometime down the road, great for him. Never in a Red Sox uniform again. Please. Enough of that guy. That is Julian McWilliams from the Globe. Julian, thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Great stuff. We'll have to do it again down the road. Awesome, man. I appreciate having me again. All right, coming up next, we'll get to a couple of your calls. Also, I do want to get to the Patriots in terms of, I think there's a real chance they could get a number one receiver in the offseason, and we'll get into this offensive coordinator situation as well. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Great stuff there from Julian McWilliams. That story about Heim Bloom at the airport is just fascinating with the Xander Bogart situation. I still don't know how he was stunned. Like, you had to imagine he was leaving. And I know that Julian mentioned that Haim knew that he was leaving, but it's just crazy that he was stunned that it actually happened. All right, let's get to a couple of your calls. we get time for a couple of those. 617-396-7172, the number is 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hey, Brian, it's John in the car. I thought you were 100% on the money with your Jason Tatum 51 recap. He certainly was on a different level. And I got to tell you, it reminded me of the Larry Bird 60-point game against the Hawks with Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers was laughing it up at the end of the bench. Tatum was on a different level. And you nailed it on the on the, uh, the lob to Rob Williams. It honestly looked like he lost balance and said, oh, I'm getting double teamed. Might as well flick it up in the air because I'm in the paint and I know Rob Williams <laughs> is going to tap it home with his wingspan. The other play that really nailed it home for me was the last three watching LaMelo Ball who looked like a JV kid who was finally getting some garbage time and was on the court trying to be a play hard, going to make a block in the last pass, and Tatum swatted him off like a fly. What an enjoyable game. I'm looking forward to the rest of the season. Let's just keep our fingers crossed for the health the rest of the way. All right, great stuff as always, John. Yeah, with Tatum on Monday, that was just incredible. I stand by that. It's the best game I've seen Tatum play. He was phenomenal. The -the off-the-ball movement, the lob to Rob, the three at the end, it was all great. And then you have this game tonight where Tatum ends up with 34 and 19, and I feel like he didn't play well. He had the seven turnovers, but that's the standard we hold Tatum to. But with Tatum, it is sort of the situation right now where the Warriors are his kryptonite. Okay, the Warriors have something on Jason Tatum. They defend him better than anybody else in the NBA, but this happens with athletes all the time. I mentioned Brady earlier. You just think about Pedro. Remember for how many years Pedro couldn't pitch to the Yankees? Remember, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Like this stuff happens. Certain athletes struggle against certain teams. And right now Tatum struggles against the Warriors. But the good news is for the Celtics, 
They end up winning this game tonight. Tatum hits a huge shot late. Tatum makes some huge plays late. So let's hope going forward, if you do see the Warriors in the finals, that this game sort of helps you mentally against this team. Now, I will say this, as I mentioned earlier, don't want any part of the Warriors in the NBA finals. If the Celtics make it, I hope the Warriors are not in it. Okay. All right. Who's up next? Hey, Brian. This is Tony from Richmond. Uh, Longtime listener, big fan of the show. Thanks. Uh, I'm calling about Jalen Brown's contract situation. I know that because of some weird contract rules, he's not eligible for an extension uh, until he actually hits free agency, at which point we'll be bidding for him against the rest of the NBA. Uh, As a big Jalen Brown fan, that's pretty worrying, uh, but uh, it sounds like we're eligible to offer him an extension if he makes an all-NBA team this year. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about uh, Jalen's chances to make an all-NBA team, Uh, our chances to extend him if he does make an all-NBA team, how much money that extension should be worth, how highly we should be valuing Jalen Brown. I personally value him really highly. I think he's awesome. Um, And then finally, what kind of contract we think Jalen should be getting uh, in his next round. Thanks again. Big fan of the show. Okay, so Tony, I thought it was a lock for a while that he was going to make an All-NBA team, but the guard line right now is absolutely stacked in the NBA, so it may be difficult for him to make it. I will say this, if he does make an All-NBA team, and he has a really good chance just because he's on the best team in the NBA, so let's say the hypothetical is he qualifies for the Supermax, you give him the Supermax, okay? He's your second best player, he's still relatively young, him and Tatum are your two best players, you don't worry about it, right? Okay, you look at it and you say, okay, we had some issues in the past in terms of the trade rumors, blah, 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 just get it done. Like if Jalen qualifies for the Supermax, that to me makes it very easy for Jalen, where it's just like, and the Celtics, like, okay, we can get this done, give him the Supermax, that's way more than anybody can ever offer him. That's the easy part. Okay, let's say he doesn't qualify for the Supermax. You still have the advantage when you get to free agency where you have the five-year contract and the other teams can only offer the four-year contract. And I believe the Celtics are going to win a championship in one of the next two seasons. So I think it's going to make it really difficult for Jalen Brown to leave this team, especially considering the relationship he's built here with his teammates, the relationship he's built here with the city, and most importantly, the relationship he's built with Jason Tatum. So I was like, if you asked me this question a year and a half ago, I was worried about Jalen being a flight risk. Maybe he felt he was underappreciated. Maybe he felt like he could be the guy for a team and he could be the guy for a team. I just don't think that team would be uber successful with Jalen as the number one guy, right? Tatum, yeah, the number one guy, but Jalen is basically the best number two guy you can have in the NBA. It's the best duo. I just don't think that he's a flight risk like I did previously. So And look, maybe there's some situation that plays itself out in the next couple of years that makes Jalen possibly want to test free agency. But I feel pretty good about those two guys being here for the foreseeable future. I know it's sort of like the elephant in the room talking about Jalen's contract situation, but I don't feel badly about it right now. I feel like ultimately they'll get this done. All right. I do want to get to some Patriots, though, because this offseason obviously has already been wild. We'll get into the offensive coordinator situation in just a second here. But my buddy Andrew Callahan from the Herald had an article up about the possibility of adding a number one receiver in the offseason. And remember, we talked about DeAndre Hopkins earlier this week, but Callahan made a good point. There's a lot of other receivers that could be available on the trade market. Now, we all know that the free agency market, there's not a lot of receivers. Like, I'm not kidding. Jacoby Myers is the best available receiver in free agency, unless you think Juju Smith-Schuster is a better player. I personally don't. So you're not going to get one in free agency. But it's interesting. So the names that Callahan points out here, DeAndre Hopkins, as we all know, 
Keenan Allen. So the reason for Keenan Allen is this. The Chargers are right now scheduled to be $19.8 million over the salary cap, and they have to pay Justin Herbert, right? He's going to get that big, massive contract. All right. So then there's Mike Evans. The Bucks right now, how about this number? They're scheduled to be $43.7 million over next year's cap. At the moment, they can do things to get that, of course, lower. But that's where the Bucs are at. And remember, Tom Brady's not playing for the Bucs next year. I think we can all agree on that, which makes it more likely that Mike Evans may be playing elsewhere next season as well, considering the big contract. Another interesting name that Callahan pointed out is T. Higgins. The reason for T. Higgins, last year of his rookie contract, and they have to pay Joe Burrow, that big contract like we talk about with Herbert, and Jamar Chase, who's one of the best receivers in the NFL. They're going to have to pay him. And the last receiver he has on here in terms of a possibility in the trade market is Jerry Judy. Jerry Judy, fifth-year option, and remember where the Broncos are at right now. They just traded a shit ton of draft picks for Russell Wilson. So the point being is they need to acquire more draft picks. They may be willing to move on from a guy like Jerry Judy. Okay, so out of these five receivers that Callahan pointed out in terms of possibilities for the Patriots in terms of who they could go after in the offseason— Here's my number one target out of this group, Hopkins. This is simply, don't overthink it. He's the best player available out of this group. He's the best receiver out of these guys. He's entering his 31-year-old season, but there's no drop-off with the player whatsoever. Following the suspension, he was really good, and you still have to double-team him. The guy was at 7.1 receptions per game last season. Where did that rank in the NFL? Fourth, okay? The only guys ahead of him, Cooper Cup, Justin Jefferson, and Jamar Chase, like the three best receivers in the NFL. He was ahead of Tyreek Hill and Stephon Diggs in terms of receptions per game. The guy is still unstoppable. Belichick even said it himself. When he's not open, he's still open. He's that dependable. So on a per-game basis, he's basically as dependable and as dominant as a receiver that we have in the NFL. So don't overthink it. If this is the guy that you can get, if you can acquire DeAndre Hopkins, he should be the number one target. Okay, So then it gets a little bit more interesting in terms of how do you rank the next four guys on this list? And you may think I'm crazy with who I would put number two in terms of the targets for the Patriots, but I'm going with Jerry Judy. And I know this may sound crazy, but I would put Keenan Allen way up on this list if durability wasn't an issue, if age wasn't an issue, right? So this comes down to Jerry Judy and T. Higgins for number two and number three. And so T. Higgins is the bigger name now because he plays for a significantly better team in the Cincinnati Bengals. But Jerry Judy has yet to play with a good quarterback. I mean, you think about it. Russell Wilson was absolutely horrible last season. And the year prior to that, it was Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Locke, right? So T. Higgins, we know, is a freak show. He's 6'4", 215 pounds and all that. But with Judy, remember, he was the best receiver on an Alabama team that featured Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell. Remember, he came out the year before those guys. And Henry Ruggs, who, of course, we know what happened with him in his NFL career. But the one thing about Judy is he uncovers extremely quickly. So average separation per target for Judy, 3.5 yards. Okay, that's third among receivers. You look at Higgins in terms of his average separation per route, it's at or per target, it's at 2.5. Only 15 pass catchers were lower than that, including Devontae Parker, by the way, who was last in the NFL in separation per target at 1.7. You also look at the yak per reception with Judy. He was at 6.3 last year. That was 12th among receivers, right behind A.J. Brown, one of the great receivers in the NFL, right? T. Higgins was at 3.9. That wasn't even in the top 60. 
So when you look at Mac Jones, and this is the reason I go with Judy over T. Higgins, right? Because it's whatever your taste is here, whatever type of player you prefer. But if you look at Mac Jones, he's not a guy, of course, we know that you want hanging in the pocket. He's not a guy that improvises. You want a guy that can make quick decisions, quick throws. That's who Mac is. All right. Well, this is the type of receiver that fits perfectly with Mac. That's why I would really like Keenan Allen for Mac. I just worry about the health. Like Keenan Allen's a really, really good player, but I just worry about his health. So that's why I would prefer Judy over T. Higgins because of the profile of the player. And then how about this? Like it is kind of fitting. If you look across the NFL right now, a lot of these quarterbacks are getting guys that they played with at college. And I know Mac's best season came with Devontae Smith, of course, and Jalen Waddle, but he did get time the previous season when Tua went down. He played with Jerry Judy and you start to look at it like, okay, Jamar Chase is playing with Joe Burrow with those guys played together at LSU. Oh, Jalen Waddle's playing with Tua. Those two guys played together at Alabama. Jalen Hurts is playing with Devontae Smith. Those two guys played together at Alabama. So it's sort of that connection. So I like Judy. I know he's not had a great start to his NFL career, but some of the outlying numbers tell you that he's been better than his numbers would tell you. And he's a good fit with Mac Jones based on Mac's skill set and the skill set of Jerry Judy. All right, number three on the list would be T. Higgins. T. Higgins is a really good player. I didn't, that was not meant to be like a criticism of T. Higgins. He's entering his 24-year-old season. But the one thing you really like about him is the frame we mentioned, the six foot four, 16 contested catches last season. That was six in the NFL, or I should say this past season. So I like the whole idea of Devontae Parker. Remember, that was his thing. Oh, contested catches guy. Well, actually, Higgins was six in the NFL. He's actually a legitimate bona fide contested catch guy, right? Just one interception, too, when Higgins was targeted last year as a contested catch guy. Parker was at four, right? And with Higgins, 119 rating when targeted, 21st among receivers, so he's really efficient. And you look at the seven touchdowns, right? And that's important. Why? Well, because the Patriots were 32nd in red zone efficiency last year. And if you didn't know, there's 32 teams in the NFL, right? So those guys are different type of receivers. And I just look at Higgins. I don't think he's the perfect fit with Mac. Like, I think Judy's skill set fits better with Mac. If you're telling me you can't get Judy and you're getting T. Higgins, I'm still fucking fired up. Like, okay, you got a legitimate weapon. You got a guy that defenses have to account for. But I would prefer Judy to Higgins. So then I put Keenan Allen on this list of the four possible receivers you could trade for. I put him fourth on the list. He's a better player than Jerry Judy right now. Like, don't get it twisted. He's better than Judy right now. But he only played in 10 games last year. He's entering his 31-year-old season. If you told me he was going to be healthy, yeah, I take him over, Judy. I just worry about the age that the injuries are going to continue to pile up because he's starting to get more and more injured as his seasons go on. But the prototype is perfect, right? 3.6 yards of separation per target, sixth among receivers, 75.2 yards per game. So still really productive when he was on the field. He's a guy that wins quickly. I love Keenan Allen. Absolutely love the guy. Can play in the slot. Be a great fit with Mac Jones. I just worry about the age and I wonder about the health. I feel like Judy is the better bet to sort of age with Mac, right? Where they're in the similar age range. Okay, then five on this list is Mike Evans. And I love Evans as a player. The numbers look pretty similar to last year, this year. In some cases, they're actually better. He's entering his 30-year-old season. But with Evans, I feel like he didn't look the same a lot this season. And I know the numbers tell a different story, but I watched a lot of Tampa Bay Bucks this year just because, of course, Tom Brady. And he just, it never felt like they were on the same page. And Evans didn't look like the same level of athlete that I've seen in previous seasons. Now, the touchdowns were significantly down, 14 down to six. He's a 50-50 type guy at times. Now, Brady threw him open a bunch, like that deep ball he threw against Carolina. That's Brady that made him open. Six interceptions last season when targeted compared to three the year before. With Jameis, he was at eight and eight. So 
he is a guy that you got to take risks there throwing the football to him, right? Because he doesn't always appear to be open, sort of like the T. Higgins of the world. Bottom line, though, okay, so he would be last on my list. But bottom line is, I would take any of these guys. Like, any of these guys you tell me the Patriots are trading, I'd be happy with any one of them. I'm just giving you who I would prefer. I would take any one of these five guys. Tell me, oh, you got a number one weapon. It's something the Patriots really have not had since they had Rob Gronkowski. So any one of these guys, and that's where I come back to, there's no excuses right now. There is no excuses to get a number one receiver. You get a bunch that could be available in the trade market. And it does have me feeling somewhat optimistic because you have multiple guys you could go after, right? And for those that say, hey, it's not necessary. You don't need a number one option and all that. Like, I understand you have to fix the offensive line. I'm not an idiot. The tackle position was a nightmare for the Patriots. But if you want to look at the best offenses in the NFL, okay, top five offenses in EPA per play last year, expected points added per play. Chiefs, they have a number one option. His name's Travis Kelsey. Bills, they have a number one option. His name's Stephon Diggs. Eagles, A.J. Brown. Niners, Debo Samuel. And the Bengals, Jamar Chase. Those are the top five offenses in EPA per play. And you could say, well, hey, three of those teams have great quarterbacks. Mahomes, Allen, and Burrow. And Hurts is a good player too, right? But that's the issue, is the Patriots need the number one receiver more than those teams do because those teams have the elite quarterbacks. The Patriots don't. They need to get the elite receiver to help the quarterback that is not elite, right? So when you put all those things together, it's actually more pivotal that the Patriots get that type of guy. And I'm not dismissing. I know they have to fix a lot of things. They have to fix the line too, but that doesn't mean you don't need a number one receiver. Okay, then I want to get to this offensive coordinator situation. So Nick Cayley is getting interviewed for the job, and this one to me is just perplexing, okay? So now he's ready to possibly land the job, and if you're not familiar with Nick Cayley's work, he's the tight ends coach, okay? But why wasn't he ready last year? Like, what has changed in a year? So if they feel like Nick Cayley can be an offensive coordinator this upcoming season, why didn't they make him the guy last year? That's my question. And I'm not saying he's not worth a look now, but... I've given you the list like this is who I felt should have been the coordinator last year. This is who I felt was going to be the coordinator last year because you blocked him from going to the Raiders with Josh McDaniel. So I just figured, okay, if they're not if they're not hiring an offensive coordinator, then they must be hiring Nick Cayley internally. They must think he's their next great Patriots assistant. And I've given you this list before. So if you look at tight ends, coaches turned into play callers, Brian Dayball, Sean McVay, Arthur Smith. All those guys were tight ends coaches before they were play callers. And you know what they all have in common? They dig into the low-hanging fruit, play action and RPOs. Dayball, first year with Allen and Buffalo, fourth in attempts out of RPOs, second in play action. Arthur Smith, this year, or I should say the year the Titans made the AFC title game with Tannehill, third in attempts out of play action when Arthur Smith was the play caller. McVay, Stafford was eighth in attempts out of play action Two seasons ago, you go back to 2020 when Jared Goff was his quarterback, he was first in attempts out of play action, something we've been harping on all season long. So the tight end coach loves play action, right? It be, It's because they work with the passing game and they work with the running game and they see how effective the play action passing game can be. So they dig into that. Now, I'm not saying that this means automatically it would have worked with Nick Cayley, that he would have been the same level of play caller as Sean McVay and Arthur Smith and Brian Dable. I'm not saying that those are some of the great play callers in the NFL today. But wouldn't you have rather given this guy a chance over Matt Patricia last season? I certainly would have. But here's the problem. It was such a disaster for you in 2022 
you almost need a proven commodity, right? We're all going to be happy either way that it's not Patricia. But now with all these links to Bill O'Brien, who's up for the job as well, the perception is, well, wouldn't it be a failure if you don't land a proven guy like Bill O'Brien at this point? And that's why I think, unfortunately for Kaylee, he got fucked by Bill's decision last year, right? Bill should have promoted him last year to the offensive play caller, right? And this is something that Bill has always done. Like, Kaylee's been with the organization from since 2015. So he's always promoted from within. He should have been the guy. And if you look at a team like, say, for example, the Jets, and I get it, it's the Jets. They're noticing Nick Kaylee's a good coach. They're interviewing him for their offensive coordinator position. So unfortunately... I don't think we're going to find out if Nick Cayley is going to be a good play caller for the Patriots because based on the hole that Belichick dug the organization with how bad Matt Patricia is, I don't believe Cayley's going to get the job just because Bill O'Brien is the guy that everybody wants. Bill O'Brien is the guy, and admittedly to me as well, makes the most sense because at least he's a proven commodity. But you had a chance last year to give Cayley that chance. And what happened if Kaylee was, I don't know, call me crazy, good at the job? You wouldn't be in this position right now where you had this search. And I know you could say, well, Brian, there's no guarantee. But wasn't it pretty close to a guarantee that Patricia was going to be bad? Wouldn't you have rather seen a young guy and Nick Kaylee get this opportunity, which is sort of the trend around the NFL? It just continues to make no sense to me. And unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever see Nick Kaylee as the play caller of the Patriots because of the situation that happened last year with Patricia. All right, a couple of other names getting interviews. Keenan McCardell. Now, you remember him from his playing days with the Jaguars. He was an unbelievable receiver. I remember back in the day, him, Jimmy Smith, Mark Brunel, like those Jaguars teams were good. He was with Washington from 2010 to 2011, so worked with the Shanahans, all those guys. Took a couple of years off, went to Maryland, coached Stephon Diggs at the collegiate level, actually, as a receivers coach there. Then, actually, in 2016, he wasn't working in the NFL. He was actually working with me, believe it or not. I was doing a show back at one of my old employers. It's called Around the NFL. It was like a show, basically red zone on the radio type thing. And before the show, we did like an hour pregame show. And I actually worked with Keenan McCardell along with my old radio partner, Sean Salisbury. That's where he was in 2016. Okay, then after that year, he goes to the Jaguars from 17 to 20, receivers coach there, 21 to 22. He was the Vikings receivers coach. He has been the past two years there, of course, and that means he coached Justin Jefferson and he coached Bill. Bill absolutely loves Keenan McCardell. He's spoken very highly of the guy. So I think this is smart. Now, I don't think McCardell ends up landing the job, okay? I think that, like most of you think, I think it's going to be Bill O'Brien, but this is smart just to bring him in, right? Because he's developed a lot of receivers. Like he worked with Justin Jefferson. He worked with Stephon Diggs at the collegiate level. And another thing about him is he's working with Kevin O'Connell right now, right? Kevin O'Connell comes from the Sean McVay coaching tree, right? So try to figure out what works for them offensively. At the very least, like I'm sure Bill's pumped to catch up with his old buddy, Keenan McCardell. But also you get to pick his brain on how he develops some of the receivers. Like you have a guy that you took second in the second round in Tyquan Thornton. You want him to develop. And I'm not saying he's ever going to be Justin Jefferson. He's not. But hey, what's some stuff that we can do with Tyquan Thornton? Like you want to pick these guys' brains and you also want to pick his brain like, hey, what works for these guys in terms of releases? How are you guys so successful as an offense? So at the very least, I like the fact that he's coming in for an interview. Adrian Clem is another guy they're bringing in, associate head coach slash run game coordinator at Oregon. And he was actually Bill's first ever draft pick back in 2000, lineman out of Hawaii. He coached the Steelers O-line from 19 to 21. Seems like, again, this is a situation where Bill would like to catch up with an old friend 
but also pick his brain a little bit, right, as an offensive line coach. One of the biggest issues with the Patriots this past season was the offensive line. So what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. So I don't mind this whatsoever. I just don't feel like he has a legitimate shot at actually landing the job. It just seems like it's Bill O'Brien. They're doing their due diligence. They're interviewing other people, but it just seemed like it's going to be Bill O'Brien. Now, I just keep coming back to the Kaylee thing, though. Like, man, what if that thing worked last year? <laughs> we wouldn't have to have lived through the Patricia situation. And why did you block him? Why did you block him from going to the Raiders if he wasn't going to be the play caller? For what? And now maybe he leaves this year because he's not going to get the offensive coordinator position. I just feel like it's unfortunate that we didn't get that opportunity to see Kaylee last season as the play caller of the Patriots. And because it was so bad with Patricia, you can't justify just giving it to a guy that hasn't done it. Like, I think what Patriots fans are craving for, and more importantly for Belichick, what Robert Kraft is craving for is a proven commodity. Robert Kraft sitting there saying, hey, you told me a guy that was a novice, has never done it before, was going to be fine. I'm not doing that again. Like Kraft is going to want Bill O'Brien to be the guy. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.